0: morning. Um, <clears throat> we have some different events coming up that aren't necessarily happening here on at the church property. Uh, one of them is a, uh, uh, an evangelistic conference that's happening at Champion Forest Baptist Church on October 10th. I think that's a Saturday. Uh, the Southern Baptists have been doing a push for each one to... Uh, to reach one person. And uh, can you imagine if in a 12-month time period, uh, each of us decided to reach one person with the gospel, disciple them, have them baptized, and they'd be here in this church. So um, we, would, we would be quite large, wouldn't we? Uh, uh, so it's a neat uh, initiative. I want to encourage you to sign up uh, to, to do this conference. It's a Saturday. I think it's a uh, from 8.30 until like 11.30. Uh, but I would encourage you to do that so that uh, we can be kind of thinking uh, to be reaching individuals with the gospel. Uh, also, uh, out on the, the little table out here where the events are, uh, we've uh, designed some prayer cards, and we've got uh, these different prayer cards for the Jansons uh, and for the Dunlops. And uh, these are neat things that you could pick up and be praying for uh, the missionaries. Uh, You can put it in your Bible so that when you spend time in devotions in the morning, you can see them and be praying for them for their ministry in France and in the Philippines. Also, uh, you, you can put these on the refrigerator. You know you go to the refrigerator at least like 20 times in a day. So, each time you go to the fridge, you see them and you can be Praying for them as you go and grab something to eat. Uh, I would encourage you to pick one up and um, one of one of each, and you can be uh, praying for them. We are in Ephesians chapter 3, and we'll be looking at verses 14 through 19. Ephesians chapter 3, 14 through 19. Uh, Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, this is the word of the Lord. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray now as we are looking at this text that uh, your Spirit would illumine our minds so that we can understand your love for us, Christ's love for us. Father, I pray now that uh, as we contemplate this, uh, that uh, it's not just information, but that it will be something that we'll put into action to share your love with, with other individuals, other believers who are hurting with the loss. Uh, I, I pray, Father, that this won't just be an academic endeavor, but that we will be in awe of you, of your love towards us. Jesus name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, In the book by S.D. Smith, The Rising Ember, there's a chapter where it talks about Pickett and Wheezy who are in uh, Wheezy's farm in the first warden. The first warden had been taken over a long time ago by the birds of prey and they had been capturing rabbits and, and really the first warden was really in disarray. Because not only were the birds of prey taking the different rabbits, but they had also infiltrated into some of the rabbits and turned them so that they were traitor rabbits. And these uh, guys, they dressed all in black, and you could only see their eyes. They looked for opportunity to capture rabbits uh, who were uh, trying to be against the birds of prey. There is Pickett, who is not part of the first warden, he had grown up a free rabbit, and he's in the first warden with uh, Wheezy, and they're looking out and the land, and and it's just in disarray, and, and he is in shock to see it. And he asked her, how in the world is she able to keep her spirits up? How, looking at all the disarray, looking at all the antagonism, all the opposition from the birds of prey, how in the world, and not only of the birds of prey, but Uh, Of their own rabbits who turned against them, how do they keep their spirits up? And Wheezy says, um, they really don't know anything else. They they know that it's bad, but bad is all they know. Pickett starts to talk to her about uh, free rabbits. And free rabbits that are working towards the, the day when the king would come and there would be amended wood. Uh, the mended wood is something that they anticipated. And as he talked about this king coming to establish the mended wood, Wheezy's eyes flashed with hope. Now, can you imagine living in that opposition? You've got the birds of prey and you've got the rabbits who are traitors. And, and there you are and you're anticipating a future hope. The context that we find this letter of Ephesians, Paul is, is writing to this church that's in Ephesus, and there's a huge temple to the goddess Diana, uh, Artemis. If you read in Acts chapter 19, you will see Paul's ministry there in Ephesus on his uh, missionary journey. And as he's there, uh, such was the impact of of Paul working there. The God, the Spirit is using Paul in such a way that uh, so many people are receiving Christ as their Savior. That it's turning people away from worshiping idols and purchasing idols. That Demetrius he he really sees a loss in profits, and he he gathers these other idol uh, makers, and they start to uh, talk, and, and a riot starts to be forming there in Ephesus. In fact, in Acts chapter nineteen, verse twenty-eight, it talks about how uh, the 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 city came together, and for two hours they start chanting over and over and over again about. Um, how uh, Artemis is uh, the great of of Ephesus and uh, of the Ephesians. Now, you can imagine living in that context. There's a huge temple, and they worship Artemis. Not only are they worshiping, but there's antagonism from the Jews. There's antagonism from the Gentiles. Uh, Can you imagine being a church in that context? What hopelessness they would have of living in such a pagan place. A person would lose sight of the blessings and the hope they have in Christ. How should a believer in the Ephesian church live? Or how should we live in our context, in our situation? What we're going to be looking at today is that we need to be praying, uh, pray to God that He would give you and others an ever increasing knowledge of Christ's love. That's what our text is going to focus on, is that we need to pray to God to give us and others an ever-increasing knowledge of Christ's love, Uh, to be firmly rooted, to be cemented in this idea that Christ loves us. And, And we need to pray that God would give us and others an increasing knowledge in Christ's love. In verses 14 and 15, we see that we need to Pray to the Father because He's sovereign over all. We need to pray to the Father because He's sovereign over all. Uh, Verse 14 says, For this reason. Now, He's continuing from where He left off in verse 1 of chapter 3. You remember that uh, chapter 3, verse 1, it says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And then in verse 2, He kind of digresses into this thought that He develops from 2 all the way to verse 13, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of the God's grace. Uh, so, he, he resumes what he was started in verse 1. Uh, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. He, he's giving a prayer. It's not the first time that he writes a prayer to the Ephesians. If you remember back over in chapter 1 verse 15, it says, For this reason I too... Having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. In that context, his desire was that they may be given a spirit of wisdom and of revelation of the knowledge of Him. That they would understand who God is. That they would understand who Christ is and the work of the Spirit in them. His desire was for them to have a deeper knowledge of this. Now he gets to chapter 3 and he, he continues his uh, another prayer. And this prayer is a little bit different. It, it's interesting as we look at his prayer that while he could have just reiterated that he prayed for them, just like he did over in verse 16 of chapter 1, he, he uses uh, a, a figure of speech of a posture to talk about what he was doing. He is bowing my knee, bending his knees before the Father. Now, there's no text, there's no text that says you must pray in this this posture. Jesus does say, pray in this way. It says, our Father which art in heaven. Uh, But there isn't a text that says you must pray in this posture. So the fact that he indicates the posture in which he's at as he's praying it is important. And he's doing this before the father. So as we think about this, his direction, his inclination, his posture is not in general, but it's towards God. And he mentions him as, as father. Father. Now, a father can be, in its most general sense, the, the other person that by which a kid child was born. Or or it can mean the supreme deity who is responsible for the origin and care of all that exist. The supreme deity who is responsible for the origin and care of all that exist. As one tries to interpret this, there would be a couple of temptations. The first temptation would be to understand father in, in our current culture in our current context. And what what does what a current father look like in our context? Well, the father is, um, he's that guy that's on the sofa playing video games while the mother is trying to get the family together, you know. Or he's the one there watching the football game and the mother's doing everything else trying to take care of the kids. So we might think of father in that context. That That's not the best way to interpret the scriptures of using our our current culture to understand what is being talked about God. Another way that someone might try to interpret what does this father mean is by maybe studying Greek culture or maybe Roman culture and saying, well, when these individuals read this text, what is it that they would have understood? You say the word father. what, What was their family structure like? And that would also be a a huge error because you do not interpret text based on what a person might understand. Rather, one needs to look at what did the author intend to communicate. Now, how in the world do you understand what the author intended to communicate? Well, he's not here. We can't ask him. So when you said, Father, what did you mean? We don't have him here. So what must we use to be able to understand what he is saying? Well, context, 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 context. Context always tells us what what, it, what they're trying to say. What's the intention of the author? It's not the first time that Paul has used the word father. In, in fact, in chapter one, uh, verse two, it says, "Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ." And, and then in chapter. Uh, chapter one, verse three and following, it talks about uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then it starts talking about all these things that this Father has done. He has, he has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. He he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, uh, out of the kind intention of His will, to the praise of His glory. Uh, he. He redeemed us through the blood of Christ, forgave us, sealed us with the Spirit. These are things that were done before any of us were born. He he acted in his own sovereign will and his own sovereign decision. He didn't go around asking each of us what we wanted or what we thought or what our opinion was. He, He acted as supreme because he created and he sustains. It was his plan. Now, this is the context in which Paul is addressing this. Is someone who has total authority, has authority over everything. This idea of total authority you can see in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis 2, uh, where God is speaking and nature is responding. He speaks light and He speaks creation. And then He tells that plants must produce according to their kind. Uh, You go and you... Uh, plant rice, and, and it's not like they say, no, I'm not going to produce rice, I'm going to produce coconuts. You know, It doesn't do that. The, nature obeys its, its maker. Animals produce animals according to their kind. You see that God does this. He's sovereign in control of all these things. Now, looking at this, he, he goes a little bit further by saying, from whom Every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now, to whom is he Father? Well, it says every. You could also translate it to all families. All families. Now, just in case we don't understand what every or all means, he goes on to say, to, to qualify it a little bit better, heaven and on earth. He's Father over <laughs> those who are in heaven and those who are on earth. Just in case we didn't understand what all or every meant, he's going to go a little bit further. Now some will say, well, this, is, this, this has to be He's only father, he's only father of um, those who are saved. And therefore, what it has to mean is that those who are on earth are those elect saved, and then those who are in heaven are those who have passed away and now are in the presence of the Lord. I don't think that uh, the context uh, allows that because here it's not necessarily talking about relationship as it is in chapter 1, verses 3, uh, all the way to 14, but rather it's talking about His sovereignty and His control over everything, His authority. So, as we look at His authority, what is His authority over? It's over everything. In chapter 1, verse 21, it talks about how uh, God... The Father has established Christ to be over all principalities, over all rule, authority, power, and dominion. If Christ is over all those celestial beings and God put him in charge of, therefore God is supreme authority over it all. I mean, that's just simple, right? He he is the authority. He is the sovereign one. Now, you're like, well... Okay, I see where he might be in charge over both uh, elect, confirmed angels and demons. But what about people? Well, again, it's not talking about relationship. Are there any texts that would kind of show us where God is called Father and there is involved both saved and unsaved? Well, yes, there is. There happens to be a text. Uh, if you remember over in um, Exodus, uh, God presents Himself before Moses. And as He presents Himself before Moses, He says, Look, I, uh, I want to use you to, to pull out Israel because I have seen and I have heard the cries of Israel, and I want to take them out to a land that flows with milk and honey. And uh, I want you to go to, to Pharaoh and tell them, and it says over in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Now, is everyone in Israel saved? Well, Of course not. They cross the Red Sea. Moses' sister is singing and praising. She pulls out the tambourine and she goes to town. And, and they get to Mount Sinai, remember? Moses' is up there receiving the law. It looks like the mountains on fire. And what are the people doing down below? Worshipping a golden calf. Oh, they're not all saved. They're all all God-fears. They're against Him. In fact, Moses goes in with the Levites that kill a whole bunch of them. So this idea that God is Father, it's not in the relationship aspect of chapter 1, 3 through uh, 14, but it's in His authority over all that He bows his knee before him. Now, if we're to pray to the Father because he's sovereign over all, it has certain implications for us, one of which is that we should humble ourselves before God. He, He could have just said that he prays for them, he could have just left it like that. He's already said it once in that fashion, he could say it again. But instead of saying it like that, he talks about his posture, and his posture is one of humility. As he bows down before God, which is a posture of humility, he's presented himself before God. So he's not bowing down in the sense of, que sera, sera. What will happen, what will happen. I have no control over my circumstances, and so uh, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm just going to pray. No. He's addressing God. Not, Not only is he bowing down... Uh, before the Lord, his posture also shows that it's not just what will be what will be, but it's also is I'm not going to try harder. I, I'm not going to tighten up my boots and, and tighten up my belt and, and I don't want to try harder. He is in humility presenting himself before God. Presenting himself before God and as it says here in verse 1 of chapter 3, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ for the sake of you Gentiles. He is praying for the Gentiles in this difficult situation. Now, he humbles himself before God. As I said, this idea of father goes back to the person who creates and sustains everything. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, as you see that... um, God is creating things and seeds are producing according to their kind and animals are producing to their kind. The test comes. Will man be obedient? Man created in the image of God, will man be obedient to what God has said? Seeds are producing according to their kind, animals are producing according to their kind. But then comes Genesis chapter 3. He says, "Don't don't eat. The day you eat of this fruit, you'll surely die." And comes a serpent and says, oh, you're not going to die? And boy, that fruit looked good. And so what did they do? They took and they ate. (coughs) As we think about this, Adam and Eve did not submit themselves to the authority, to the sovereignty of God. Rather, they decided to do things what they felt best. If you study the life of Samson... When Samson wants his wife, he tells his parents, she is pleasing to my eyes. He doesn't say she has a relationship with the Lord, she's a God-fearer, nothing. He says, she's pleasing to me. The question is, are we going to submit ourselves? (coughs) Paul submits himself, humbles himself before the Lord. Now, not only does he submit himself, humbles himself before God, but he prays to the Father, and he prays to the Father in, in difficulty. Paul was, as it says here, a prisoner. He he's in prison. Excuse me. He's in prison, and uh, he it's not the first time he's in a difficult situation. You remember over in Acts chapter 9, Paul receives Christ as a Savior, and he is um, he, he's traveling, goes back to Jerusalem. And while in Jerusalem, he's meeting with the apostles, and he's meeting with the disciples. And, and they, they, the disciples want to kill him. His own Christian Jewish believers, they're antagonistic against him. They, they want to kill him. He, he has to escape and go. If you remember in Acts chapter 19, verse 23, (coughs) Paul wants to go and and talk with the people who are against him because they're saying all these things. And and his disciples say, No, don't don't go. He had Gentiles against him. If you remember in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16 and 17, it says uh, he's writing to them, he's in prison. Maybe he wrote Timothy after he wrote the letter of Ephesians. He says, At my defense, at my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. Paul was in a difficult situation. He had believers against him. He had heathen against him. He had people of his own nation against him. And then when he's standing trial, he says, the Lord stood with me. That's it. His prayer for the Gentiles did not come after he had a huge meal, had a nice nap, and said, oh, I'm feeling really good. You know what? I think I'll pray for the Gentiles now. But rather, it comes out of difficulty and opposition an antagonism. (laughs) Why is it that believers go against believers? I don't know. But it happens. And he, instead of focusing on that, focuses on praying for the Gentiles. There is a common theology that's out, popular theology that's out, that says you must invest in yourself and fill yourself up, and then when you're all filled up, then you can serve other people. There's just too much antagonism in this world to ever be like that. If you're waiting to get to the point where you're going to be all filled up so that you can then be praying and thinking about other people, when will that be? We're like in the first warden. Not only is there birds of prey, but there are some rabbits that are traitors. And at every corner, they're trying to get you. Paul is praying for these Gentiles. Now, as we look at this, and he's he's asking for prayer, as he's praying to the Lord, we see that he prays for them to be strengthened so that they have an intimate understanding of Christ's love. We see that in verses 16 through 19. He's asking for an intimate understanding of Christ's love. That's his prayer. An intimate understanding of Christ's love. Verse 16 says, that He would grant you, that He would grant, that He would uh, give to you. He would bestow on you. He would bestow on you, and it says, according to the riches of His glory. So, that He might give to you according to the riches of His glory. It kind of depends on how much riches He has, right? Because if He has uh, very little riches... It really doesn't amount to much, right? That's like saying, I'm going to bestow uh, upon my riches, you know, blah, 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 blah. And you're like, well, that's not going to get me very far. How much riches does Christ have? How much riches does God have? He he owns everything. He's the Father. He has complete authority. He creates and sustains all things. Not only here on this world, but all the universe, all the galaxies, all the stuff that we're still trying to discover. He owns it all. What is his riches? We, we don't have a, a way to calculate it all. And he says that with this, that may be granted according to the riches, uh, that be strengthened, that strengthened has this idea of to, to be fortified or to grow strong. It's it's a word that's not used very often in the New Testament. In fact, it's only used four times. Luke chapter one verse eighty, the reference is to uh, John the Baptist, and it talks about John the Baptist that he uh, grew in strength and in knowledge. As in, as time progressed, he didn't stay the same, but rather as time progressed, he kept on changing. And he was growing stronger and stronger. In Luke chapter 2, verse 40, the, the word is used in reference of Jesus. And again, the idea is that as time progressed, he didn't stay a little bitty baby, but he grew stronger. Over time, there was a change. Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. Here he is urging them to stay strong. In fact, he's going to send uh, Stephanus and Achaeus to come and to give what they are lacking in their faith. The idea is that they're here, and over the progress of time, they should be strengthened. Wouldn't it be sad that as time progresses, we would be in the same situation as we were the day we were saved? Wouldn't that be a sad commentary that rather than being strengthened, we're still at the same place when we got saved? Our faith hasn't increased at all. What does he want them to be strengthened in? Strengthened with the power of the Spirit. In what? In your inner man. For what purpose? It says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Uh, There is a a group of people that uh, when they're talking about salvation, they use uh, vocabulary of invite Jesus into your heart. Uh, I don't think you can use this verse to advocate for that because he is writing to people who are already saved. What in the world then is Christ dwelling or residing in your heart through faith? Well, (coughs) there are different passages that kind of talk about the heart. For example, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, it says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. In uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 43, Jesus is talking about uh, the heart, and he is relating it to the root. Uh, what type of fruit does a tree produce? It, that fruit is based on whatever root it has. Uh, if you plant pineapple plants you're going to get pineapples. It's not like they go and say, no, I want to start producing grapes. It just doesn't happen that way. uh, Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 43, For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor, on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. The fruit is dependent upon the root, and he's going to correlate it to the heart. He says, For each tree is known by its fruit, for men do not gather figs from thorns, nor they pick grapes from briar bush. The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. The evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Why do you do what you do? Based on what you have in your heart. I'm not talking about your physical pumping heart, but who you are. What you desire is what comes out. And Paul says, I want Christ to dwell in that place where you desire, where you want, through faith. It's what he's saying is, I want you to look less like yourselves, and I want you to look more and more like Christ. I want you to be less like how you were two months ago, and I want you to be more and more like Christ. Now, why is the faith? Important. Because as you become more and more like Christ, it will take faith to be continuing to be obedient. You'll say, I don't want to do that. And it'll require faith to say, I will be obedient because I want to be more like Christ. Look what he says. He goes on further. And that being rooted and grounded in love. To be firmly planted, the roots go down to be Grounded is to have a a foundation, a foundation appropriate for whatever you're going to build upon it. And both of these are uh, being used as adjectives of love. They're grounded in love, rooted in love, that they may be able to comprehend with all the saints, that they can be able to grasp, to have an understanding uh, of what? Uh, The length, the the breadth, the length, the height, the depth. to to be able to comprehend how big is Christ's love. What is the size of this thing? Is it teeny tiny and small, or is it big? We need to be strengthened to be able to understand this, to comprehend this. He goes on to say in verse 19, uh, And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up with the fullness of God. That word filled has the idea of being under the influence of. For example, he uses it in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, where he says, not to be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. The idea is a contrast between being under the influence of alcohol or being under the influence of the Spirit. Here he's saying, be filled with the fullness of God. In in whom does the fullness of God dwell? In Jesus Christ. What are we supposed to look like? We're supposed to look more and more like Christ and less and less like ourselves. It it, it would be terrible to think, wow, Daniel, you've been here six years and you're identical to the day that you came here. Like something has happened in my spiritual life. Something very sad and depressing it would also be sad and depressing to say, you know what, I've been a member of this church since the day it started, and there's been no change in my life. Something terrible has happened. You haven't understood that Christ loves you. You haven't come with Christ dwelling in you. You're not in the, being filled under the influence of the fullness of God, which is Christ, being shown through you. As we look at this and we think about it, there's a couple applications that I want to make just quickly. The first is, is that God, God loves you. That, that, that's an important point of this text. It, it's so important that he, he is praying that their mental capacity can be strengthened so that they can understand that God loves you. In other words, your human capacity to think about God's love is not sufficient to be able to understand that God loves you. He loves you. Paul suffered persecution. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 32, he says that while he was in Ephesus, he fought off wild beasts. Now you think about living in a context where there's that persecution and that suffering. Maybe Paul should have told him something else, like encouraged him in another fashion. But instead of encouraging him in another fashion, he says, God loves you. And, and there's no human way of understanding that God loves you unless you are strengthened to understand what is this, what's the dimensions of this love. Paul is suffering persecution and he knows that they're suffering persecution. Paul suffered persecution not just from the unsaved, but from people who are saved, people who said that they love the Lord. And in that suffering, he says, What you need to know most, more than anything, is that God loves you. You say, How, how does that help me? Oh, if you can understand that the Father, the one who has authority over everything, loves you, then you can put your trust in whatever you're going through to a sovereign Father who has complete authority over everything. Not only that God loves you, but that Christ must dwell in our hearts to change our desires. We have to dwell with Christ to change our desires. By faith, it requires faith, okay? The same faith that was required at the moment of salvation to put your faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, the same faith that said, I'm lost and there's not a thing in the world I can do to save myself. I'm going to trust what Jesus Christ did. That same faith is required to live the Christian life. Because as God starts to rip you away so that Christ can shine It'll take faith. You're like, no, I I really need this aspect of my personality. I I really need this part of, of me. This is who I am. This is my heritage. This is my whatever. And just God doesn't care to see that. He cares to see Christ dwelling in you, the fullness of God. And that is what he's working as we think about this, we're to pray that God will give you and others an ever-increasing love, and ever-increasing knowledge of Christ's love. Remember Pickett and Wheezy at the beginning of the sermon? Where I left off where they were looking at the farms and seeing it all in disarray. At that instant, they heard a twig break, and before Pickett could pull out his sword... Uh, Five rabbits dressed in black, only their eyes could be seen, jumped on him and tackled him to the ground. Took his sword away. And his struggle, he looked over at Wheezy and uh, he saw that that light in her eyes of hope for the mended wood went out. Just totally went out. There was no hope anymore. If we think about our world, we we live in a fallen world. At every turn, you have the world pouncing on you. You have believers pouncing on you. You think uh, you're working together, but uh, you're not. It's just not. What is it that you need to know most in that time? Living in this fallen world, what is it that you need to know most? It's that God loves you. He loves you. Now, for you who are lost, that love is is very important because even though He loves you, unless you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you'll spend all eternity away from a God that loves you. There's nothing more tragic than that, that a God that loves you and sent His Son to die for you to live all eternity separate because you never trusted Christ as your Savior. For the other of us who are saved, we haven't had Christ dwelling in us. There's been no strengthening. There's been no change over time. In fact, we can look back at three months ago, six months ago, two years ago, and we're at the exact same place. Responding to situations in the exact same manner. There's no more Christ in us than the day we were saved. What you need to know is that God loves you. And he is going to sanctify you. And in faith you can trust his work. It's going to hurt, oh yes. He's going to rip pieces away from you but what's going to be left is the fullness of God, Christ himself. Let's pray. Father, even being strengthened, we don't understand your love for us. I pray that if there is someone here unsaved, that your spirit would convict them, show them your love for them. Father, I pray for other of us who are saved here We've been struggling in a fallen world. We've been struggling with other believers. We've been struggling in situations. And I pray that our minds would comprehend, that we strengthen to understand that you love us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you please stand with me as we sing this